Well, in that sequence, I'm driving the blue car. And we're, we're coming up to where you break your neck. Correct. So you're... That's the blue car on the left there with all of the camera. That's Cameron <laughs> sitting on the car. And that's right. that was the shot right there? Well, where... I, I sheared the top off the semi under tow because it was too dangerous to drive. On the third trip in, he overran it, and he hit it so hard that it jackknifed me, the trailer, and the ATV, and turned it over. I had about 1,400 pounds of ATV trailer and motorcycle on top of my chest. You talking to me? Hi, Brian Lally, Hollywood native, and you're watching the show, Brian Lally, Hollywood native. Why do I say that? Because I was born on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood, California. I'm sitting here with Scott Williams. Scott, who do we have on the show today? On the show today, Brian, we have a great stuntman, Jack Carpenter. Jack Carpenter? Jack Carpenter. I thought you were lying when you said we could get him. Well, speaking of lying, he was in the movie True Lies, which he has some really great stories. Jack is a phenomenal stuntman, driver, engineer. Jack has done many big films, worked with phenomenal directors like James Cameron, doesn't get any bigger than that, on Terminator 2 and True Lies. He's going to tell you stories how many times Arnold had to knock him off a horse. Oh, he broke his neck on Terminator 2. That's a fun story. Working on the Rambo franchise. He's got a million of them, so stick around. You're going to be entertained. Did you know that Harold Lloyd actually had a stunt double? I did not know that. It was widely believed, and it was part of Harold Lloyd's persona, if you will, that Harold Lloyd did all of his own stunts, like hanging on the hands of the clock over yeah. Times Square, etc. And the reality is that Harold Lloyd had a stunt double. His name was Harvey Perry. And nobody ever knew Harvey Perry's name because Harvey Perry is part of the stuntman ethic would have never told somebody that he doubled Harold Lloyd. And he never did until after Harold Lloyd passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then he just shit on his grave. No, then some people got together and did a uh, documentary about him. And I actually saw it back when cable TV was really new. Remember Z Channel? Z Channel the first was place the you only watch channel. movies. Yeah. They always, the movies were always the wrong length to go at half hour or the hour, so they would build filler in. And one of the fillers, which I recorded, I think I've got it somewhere, was a, about a 20-minute to 30-minute uh, documentary on Harvey Perry and showing right. some of the stuff that he did, which was amazing. The fact that he lived to die of old age, which he did, was thoroughly astounding. But I've always been impressed with his ethic, that he never told a soul he was Harold's double out of loyalty and, and professional ethic. Right. And that's still alive today. When you see an actor go on a late-night show and claim he does all of his own stunts, a lot of them do a lot of significantly high-risk stuff, but the studio would never allow them to be put, be put in a place of risk because if I get hurt as a stuntman, they get a new guy in 10 minutes right. with a phone call that looks just like me. Right. But if your lead high-dollar actor gets hurt, production is shut down, the studios don't put up with it. Yeah, it happened to Harrison Ford just on the most recent Indiana Jones. He got hurt doing, I don't know how, he, but he they had to shut down for weeks. He did. Uh, it, there's, it's not like they're not in positions of risk, but if you're rolling a car over four times and you're, you're doubling somebody like Harrison Ford, Harrison Ford's not in there in the five-point belts with a button to the cannon. Right. He's behind the camera watching or having a latte back at his room. They don't put him in those places unless you can physically identify the actor. There's no reason for them to be placed at risk. You okay. see Tom Cruise strapped yeah. to the side of an airplane. Yeah. He's probably really doing that. I haven't been there. I've done other movies with him, but he's probably really doing that. But believe me, he has safety on there 17 ways from Sunday. 
it takes a lot of balls to do what he's doing. Right. But there are stunt people on that on the call sheet that double him to do stuff where they're not going to recognize him or where the risk is significantly high, they'll double it. Right. How old were you when you started racing motorcycles? I was about eight years old. I raced <laughs> cars before that. So you were racing go-karts or cars before I was that? racing quarter midget cars when I was four years old. I won my first race in an open-wheel car on an asphalt Get track. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, so it was asphalt. It wasn't Ascot. It was asphalt on a small track. It was all young people like me. Saga Speedway? No, I don't remember where it was. It was it was sixty five years ago, Brian. It was but you were you were four. You I had was, a memory. I was four. I still have a resentment about it. That's why I remember it. <laughs> we we forget <laughs> everything but the resentment. No, that's why it's still in my memory bank. Yeah, so I, I went out. I won my first race after trying for a long time to win a race. Right. And there was a trophy stand up there. And when you won a race, you'd go up to get a trophy. And they right. had this line of cute little girls up there. And when you won a race, one of them little girls is going to give you a trophy and give you a kiss. Right. I wanted to kiss one of them little girls up there. I'm four, but I'm, I'm really interested in that. Right. And my cousin Kimberly, who I actually saw for the first time last week in several years, was in the line waiting to be a trophy girl. And when I won the race, she got to the head of the line and I told them, I'm not kissing her. She's my cousin. I risked my life to kiss one of these girls, not to kiss my cousin. But my family thought that was a unique photo opportunity. So I got my trophy and got to kiss my cousin as my trophy girl for the race. And I have not gotten over it since then. You were living in Hollywood area at the time? As far as I know, I think my earliest memory was living in Whittier, California. Really? In Whittier, yeah. But my dad and my uncles all grew up in Hollywood doing the motorcycle gang thing and I was born in Hollywood Press, and I'm sure they were living at some small place in Hollywood at the time. How old were you when you moved to Silmar? We lived in Silmar, I think I was probably about six, seven years old when we, when okay. we came up to the valley. and right. We are doing horses and motorcycles. Motorcycles were a constant. You were doing mostly speedway, flat track? I was racing mostly motocross. Oh, you were? However, in those days when you raced, whatever was running that weekend, you went and did that. So if they were road racing, you'd change the gears and put the little bars on. If they were racing desert, you'd put the bigger, wider bars on and change the gears. If they're racing speedway, you'd take the brakes off the motorcycle because you weren't allowed to run brakes on a speedway, and we'd go race speedway. It was just a matter of what's happening this weekend, we'd go do that. It wasn't right. like anybody was a pure motocrosser. My dad grew up racing at Ascot Park, so he had that background. We raced international Grand Prix. I went to Ascot, went, first time I went to Ascot. We went there many times. Went the first time we went there, me and a buddy of mine, I don't know, we were 16, 17. We said, hey, nobody's sitting in the turn. Why don't we go sit there? Perfect. And I know exactly. <laughs> and it was probably sprint cars. I hope it was Oh, yeah, it was sprint cars. cars. It was sprint cars. Nobody's yeah. there. Hey, yeah. let's go. We get a great view. So what happens is the, the mud and the dirt clods from the cars kick up. They just hit you, and you're like, oh, ah, 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 oh. Right. And then you run off. And I'm sure there was a thousand people laughing at us. But when you canvassed the crowd at Ascot, all the drunks were down there in that turn because it just didn't seem to make much of an impression on them. Yeah. 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 So out at Indian Dunes a lot back then? or Indian Dunes was the closest place in. We raced Indian Dunes, Bay Mare, Carlsbad. Sure. Went out to Paris Valley and raced at Paris. Had a nice track out there. So the Indian Dunes had the motocross track and the uh, the speedway track. There. They had a speedway track, which we didn't have much to do with. It was a dirt dirt oval, basically you could race anything on there. We were there for the motocross and for the Grand Prix. And the Grand Prix, that was an enormous property. We would race across the valley and cross the water. Yeah, yeah. And go up the mountains and yeah. come back and cross the water, coming back the other way. And at either end of it, you would go in and out of a motocross track. 
right which is where the officials and most of the people were unless okay you know you want to do the hiking to go out and see somebody doing a downhill or crossing the water out in the out in the riverbed i had a suzuki rv90 with the balloon tires before the atvs came in it was just right. a, so that's how i know the property because it was a you know sand tires and stuff so i would just be cruising right. i never raced uh you know any kind of dirt motorcycle but i did own motorcycles and go out to the track. I used to right. take a friend of mine who never lost. He was like, his name was Dave Graham, and he was the only black guy I ever saw out there in the 70s. And no matter where he started, he was always, always, you know, 100 feet in front of uh, everybody at the end. He was amazing. And he broke his, he broke his leg once. And I, you know, I'd driven his truck out there with the, with the motorcycle. So I, I had to drive it back where I drove with him. And then he, you know, he rehabbed and then he broke his leg again. Did you take him to the hospital? I don't think so. I think his dad was a doctor. I could be wrong. I think I took him home. Because I broke yeah. my leg out there on the international course. I had, my right leg got turned all the way around backwards on the racetrack doing a practice session. Right. And I got the ambulance ride, and they had to load up my rig and bring it home for me. And you said, hey, if I could make a living at this, falling well, off it of was, things. This was actually many years later. I was already already making a living, and I was riding with a very well-known stuntman friend of mine who ran into me from the back and took me down. Right. He tried to bank shot off of the inside of me. He was pro. He was faster than I was, and I was holding him up, but he couldn't get by me because that's what you do. And uh, he <laughs> slid underneath me do. with a big fistful of throttle, and his tire caught my, my leg and spun it around. I felt it break. I, knew, I went tib-fib, snapped them both. Mm. And I spun around and wound up on the track, and he ran, he ran up, and he said, Are you all right? I said, and I'm very calm. Danny, my leg's broke. Danny said, Are you sure? And I said, my boots weren't facing that way when I put them on this morning, I'm pretty sure. And it yeah. was like a spiral fracture right. of bones Ugh. in the right leg. Right. So it so. got uglier after that. That was that was not the worst part. The worst part was waiting in the hospital again to fix it. When you started racing and when you kept racing, were you trying to get your dad's approval? No, not necessarily. It's it's a little different than that. My dad was one of those people that as a man he had nothing to do with the kids until the kids were old enough to do what he did. Right. If you're old enough to ride or race a motorcycle or work on a car, then we could keep his interest. He right. wasn't uh, go to Boy Scouts with us. I all through high school, I was a competitive gymnast. He never went, he went to one meet in my entire gymnastics career, which was like city quarterfinals. Probably didn't want to see you in a leotard. Well, it was it was yeah, it was more like dolphin trunks. If you really want to, know. <laughs> I would want to see you in dolphin trunks. So let me get this straight. Then you said you started racing at four. He wasn't interested in that. Why did no, that Why was, did you race? Oh no, we did that. My dad set that up. He arranged the car. It was somebody else's car. Right. And we went with my dad to go do that. Okay. But remember though, that's the beginning of me doing stuff that he's interested in. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. So when it you kept doing it, you you didn't. Okay. I'm asking. I'm not, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just asking. So you kept doing it because you wanted to do it. I very much wanted to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Anything with a throttle. I understand. Right. I understand. Couldn't wait. No. To drive and ride and do it all. It's funny because uh, when Kyle, Kyle, my son, the other Lally of Lally or Lally, right. who you know very well, when I was teaching him, a friend of mine had a 2010 uh, Carrera, 2010 911. And uh, I was teaching him in the Valley College parking lot how to drive a stick. And he was probably 18, that's, 19. That's where everybody went to learn. Right. Well, I never learned there, Jack. When I was 14, I stole my parents' car. It was a stick shift I'd never driven before. And I drove on the Hollywood Freeway at Highland. This is why I like you. Right. But but I told him he was very frustrated because he didn't get it right away. And he, he can get most things right away. 
but he, he was really frustrated. Yeah, I was like, yeah, just remember pushing the clutch, you know, as, we, as you slow down. And, and uh, he wasn't getting, I said, look, look, kid, if I gave you a controller and any video game in the world, could you figure it out? He goes, yeah, because that's what he did. I said, when I was 10, I would sit on my bed with a piece of paper with an H on it. I'd stick a pencil in it. And I'd go first, second, third, fourth, first, second, third, fourth. I said, that's what I did when I was 10. I said, so that's how I know how to do this. And, you know, but it's funny, but yeah. So that's all I ever want to do was drive a car fast. It wasn't about uh, getting his approval. It was about getting on, getting in the car, getting on the motorcycle. It was yeah. about having, and, and the later on the autonomy that that would afford you is like a teenager having a car and being able to go where you want and do what you want with whom you wanted to do it. Right. So your father was a stuntman? He was. From when you were young? From when you... No, no. He started out doing what I, what I did most of my career in the business, which was camera car driver. He began driving camera cars for a guy named Pat Eustace. Who, he began to transition to stunts. By the time I came out of the service, he was doing stunt work. He actually stunt coordinated a couple of shows. Uh, a lady got killed in one of his shows, which kind of changed his directory. He took that very personal. She was supposed to do a slide off of the roof and go into an airbag and she had, they just put like knee pads in her back pockets and she was slide down the roof and go to the bag. And instead she slid down the roof and the pads hooked on the rain gutter and turned her underneath the eave and she fell down head first between the, the bag and the wall and killed her. Oh shit. And my dad showed up at my house and it, it wrecked him. He didn't, he didn't, he coordinated I think one other show after that. He continued to do stunt work, but it, it changed his directory. Oh wow. Jeez. Okay. And so how old were you when you started doing stunts? I'd come out of the Marine Corps. I was 22. I began driving camera cars, which was my entry into the business and, right. and my living for many years. And I was doing an episode of Police Woman right. with Angie Dickinson. And a this is one of my favorite stories. A stuntman friend of mine who uh, we've known each other now for 45 years was a stunt coordinator doing a chase in Griffith Park. And they realized they'd neglected to hire a stunt double for Angie Dickinson. So he said, give me him, because he knew my dad from the stunt world. And they put a lovely blonde wig on me and a green silk blouse and some pearls. I had pearls. And I was in a cop car chasing him and drag doubling Mary Hartley on a motorcycle through Griffith Park, over the curb and down through the trees. And I'll never forget Angie Dickinson came out on this set. And he said, Angie, we'd like you to meet your stunt double. And Angie went. <laughs> I said, Oh, honey, I don't blame you, but he's a lot uglier girl than I am. And I pointed to Gary, who looked like exactly like Barry Manilow in drag. It was really bad. That was my first stunt job in the business. Okay, what's my favorite part of that story? You turned around and looked at Angie, and how did you look? I had a blonde wig and a green silk blouse and pearls. I also had mutton chop sideburns and a Fu Manchu mustache. That's the had. point I was getting at. <laughs> Angie Dickinson with they mutton chops and a Fu Manchu. <laughs> it's true it's true i had full facial hair they didn't find it necessary to shave it off yeah that's how you got started that was the very first one that i did and then yeah. the progression of it is that as the camera car guy i'm telling the actors sliding around corners driving through the fire doing the stuff and when they would come up short or need somebody extra it was a logical conclusion to get me because i was already uh, thoroughly uh, vetted with the skills to do whatever they needed to do with the vehicle the lion's share of it was me getting in a car or in a truck, or even in a semi, and driving it for picture, doubling somebody. And you worked on chips? I did chips for the pilot in all six seasons. Oh, okay.
So I was there was only two crew members that did the entire show. I didn't do any stunt work on chips, although I was rescue crew for the whole show. We rolled over a lot of cars on chips. I learned my trade by doing that. We never right. we never took the money to put a roll cage in anything. We would pick a car that had what they call a B pillar. You've got the A pillar, which is where the windshield is and the window goes against it. You got a C pillar where the back window is. And a car that has a full door has a B pillar, which is a vertical piece of steel on the back of the door, as opposed to just a piece of glass that closes with the door. And we would pick cars that had a B pillar in it because it would be additional roof support. And then our stunt guys would roll them over, do whatever they did, and then I would go in and get them out of the belts and get them out of the car. Usually they're upside down when they stop. So when did you start building these insane vehicles for cameras? When I came out of the service, I was going to college. My intention was to come out of the Marine Corps. I was going to study mathematics, and then I switched to engineering, which was my desired goal, and I was going to Cal State Northridge full-time. And uh, the guy who my dad was driving camera cars for owned the company, and I went over there one day, and he said, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, nothing, why? And he said, you want to work? I said, of course. And he hit me in the chest with the keys, and he said, don't hurt anybody, and he turned to walk away. It's a very highly technical job. I'm towing the actors. I've got the crew all over it like a bad parade float. There's an awful lot of opportunity to hurt people. And I know nothing about it except I now have the keys. And I asked him an important question. I said, wait a minute, what do I do? And he said this, and my whole career has been based on this idea. He said, well, you've got a whole crew riding on the rig. There's one guy that you're concerned with his safety. That's the guy you watch. It's the camera operator. And I said, why? He said, because everybody else on there can take care of themselves, but the camera operator, when he's in his office, which means his eyes in the eyepiece, he's living in a two-dimensional world where he has no idea if he's about to get killed or if he's 100 yards away. He's got no idea based on the depth of field and the lens selection. He'll never know till the point of impact. You make sure that guy goes home safe to his family every night. It was the only instruction I got when I went out there. And then I made a career based on that idea of walking up to my camera operator and I, I'm doing a big action movie with a lot of stuff going on. And I say, look, here's the deal. My number one job is you. I'm going to send you home safe to your family tonight. You, I'm not going to hurt you. And I developed a reputation among people who did that, that they took me on show after show after show. And it wasn't just when we were doing running shots. My specialty as a camera car driver is very specific. We're driving, I'm working. We're doing dialogue or, or stop doing cars crashing into each other. I might not have a, a role driving cameras in that. I might have done the lead-ups to it. And you look around the set, and here's a guy operating a camera, and there's going to be a car flipping and spinning and coming at him. And my post was always on that guy, hand on his belt, tell him in his ear, I got you. If I say we got to go, we got to go, and I'm with you all the way. And then I did that hundreds of times over the years, and times when I had to pull him out and push him out. And we lost cameras and, you know, we had tremendous potential for somebody to get killed. And I made sure that those guys went home safe every night. And that's got, fucking cool. Jay. When I got that that's SOC award cool. in 2014, it was from the Society of Camera Operators. Right. And I had, I had no idea that they even had such a thing. They called me up and said, you just won uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Society of Camera Operators. And it was rooted in that idea that they're more exposed than anybody else on the set. And they'd been relying on me at that time for 35 years to send them home safe. And apparently they noticed I had no idea. And his acceptance speech made me cry, you son of a bitch. That's, uh, well, usually I have to kiss you and you got to be a girl. But I'm honored <laughs> that you're the one exception to the rule, Brian. Man, Brian.
You know what I love doing? Yeah. I love tapping that subscribe button. Mmm. I love it too, son. And just like all your dates, I tap it last. But nothing's as good as tapping this button. You see Brian here? He's not always doing the best. Financially, mentally, physically, for sure. You want to help keep Brian off the streets of Hollywood? There's a way you can help. Join us on Patreon. You want to tell him what we got on there, buddy? Yes, we have the general admission. We have the backstage. And we have the VIP all-access pass. So please, join today. I'm due for a bath. In the arms of the <laughs> angel, so you started building these rigs. I've seen some crazy rigs in right. here. I started driving. You have path. a three thousand square foot machine shop on your property. Doesn't everybody? Don't you have one of those? That you on. build these rigs. That crazy go kart thing you got when you're in Terminator Two in right. the wash breaking your neck when you right. broke your neck well, but I, I saw some sort of long flat thing you had in there one time you know i don't know if it was radio control but you built something for justin lynn for one of the movies that you ended up not using but you were known to build well remember that my background was engineering i got right my whole family is artists and musicians. They all got musical notes and palettes of colors up here. I got gears and gear oil. I, it's just, I couldn't draw a stick figure to save my life. Right. I can do a tech drawing and figure out how I want to. I can design something on paper, but I don't have that ability. All of my, my workings in my brain has always been on that engineering side. Right. When I went to work for Pat, I became the guy who designed his equipment for him. We would build battery systems to power these giant carbon arc lights, which are, if you ever worked around one, they're kind of scary. It's a big flame inside of a giant tub, a controlled electronic flame, where there's two carbon probes that are burning on each other. Now, are those, is that the same system they used to have outside of movie premieres when they stuck that long, like, That's carbon? That's exactly it. It was a, it was a three-quarter inch thick carbon rod. Right. They would put in, they call it trimming the arc. Right. And they would strike it, which would mean they'd drag it across the end to create a spark. Mm -hmm. And then they would adjust it. So if you look through the welding sight glass, it would be a smooth flame. And then this piece would be rotating and feeding itself in to create the light. And if you did a shot where they were working with arcs, somebody would say trimming the arc. They meant they'd run the carbon rod down. And they had to take the light apart with these big, thick gloves and take these white, hot, glowing rods out and replace them. And I designed battery packs for Pat. It would run them on batteries without a generator. Nobody had ever done it before. So right. I began doing that for Pat. Then when Pat retired and sold the company, I built my first camera car, which I think there's pictures of it on Terminator because we used them as the old blue cars. And uh, we to tow, well, in that sequence, I'm driving the blue car. And we're, we're coming up to where you break your neck. Correct. So you're... That's the blue car on the left there with all of the camera. That's Cameron sitting on the car. Right. Was that you? That was definitely me. Oh, I, I, yeah. I, you seem surprised to know that one time I actually had hair. That's on. what surprised yeah, me. Yeah, and that's yeah. that was the shot right there. Well, where... I, I sheared the top off the semi under tow because it was too dangerous to drive the truck right. underneath the overpass. And then you broke your neck when it ran into the, when it Breaking ran into the next you. thing was a separate deal. We'd been doing the running shots in the riverbed. It's where I met Cameron. We, we showed up out there on the set to do 
testing for a week before the picture to see how we could shoot down on that riverbed. The problem is that it was like ice every day. There was nothing you could do to create traction to turn or to stop. You could barely get going on it. It was like ice. There was like a fungus or a moss growing in right. the concrete. Because it was always wet. We tried. Part. We dammed it off upriver and pumped it around us. We brought in sandblasters and tried to sandblast the surface. We brought in NASCAR jet dryers and tried to blow the surface clean, and we could never create traction. So right. I went out for this test day with that blue pickup truck, and they introduced me to James Cameron, who took my hand, and he said, uh, I'm James Cameron. He hasn't let go of my hand yet. He yeah. said, we're going to be shooting in this riverbed. There's no traction down there. We're, we're bound to, to hit the walls. How do you feel about putting a wheel sideways at all four corners of your rig so that if we hit the wall, we can keep going? That was the first statement he made to me. He still got a hold of my hand. I said, well, James, uh, there is no camera operator in the world that can control his body mass enough to stay behind the camera if we impact the wall with wheels or not, uh, which is going to ruin your shot anyway. Why don't we just not hit the walls? And he hired me and he sent home about 15 other variations of equipment, high-speed cars and other camera vehicles, sent them home, and I did the movie. We had one guy out of Canada with a motorcycle sidecar that could do some things we couldn't do any other way with an operator on board. Everything else went home. So in that shot where I got my neck broken, we needed a shot of the back tire. We were doing second unit. Cameron was doing first unit up at uh, Hanson Dam at the corral bar there, right. where the Terminator first appears in the back of the oh, truck yeah, yeah, in yeah. the flaming he, ball. We're off doing Bill a second Paxton. unit with my friend yeah. Gary, the guy that gave me the first job, double <laughs> Angie Dickinson. Gary's directing the second unit. And we needed a shot of the front bumper of the, of the semi coming in and bumping Eddie Furlong's motorcycle, Eddie right. Furlong being the actor playing the kid. And uh, there was no way to do it safe. As soon as he touched, he goes down. The truck can't stop. He goes underneath. We kill the stuntman. Right. No way to do it. So we devised a way where I put an ATV with a trailer in between and a tow rig behind to tow the motorcycle so that the stuntman driving the semi, which now has no top, he can't see the motorcycle when it's up against the front. He can see me up at the, up at the front of the ATV, riding the ATV with a helmet on. That blue camera car is running along next to me, shooting sideways down at the tire. And the stuntman, his name was, uh, he saved my life, Tommy Huff. Tommy Huff was driving it. He had another spotter because we weren't looking at the cab, leaning over, trying to look down. I'd hold a constant speed with a camera car looking at it, and he would come in. He's supposed to give it a bump and then back out. And he'd come in, slam the brakes, and it'd be just short. And he'd come in, and he'd slam the brakes, and it'd be just short. And on the third trip in, he overran it, and he hit it so hard that it jackknifed me, the trailer, and the ATV, and turned it over. I had about 1,400 pounds of ATV trailer and motorcycle on top of my chest. And I was sliding backwards down the road. First, I head-butted the fender on the camera car, which kept me from going under it. And I'm sliding down the riverbed backwards, and I can't see the semi. It's down there, and I know it's coming, and it's over. And I'm, I, I can't explain to you why, but I was really calm. I just thought, I was always wondering how it was going to end. I guess this is how it's going to end. Because I know Tommy can't stop the semi. We, we've tried repeatedly to make him stop. Gary is standing on the back of the truck looking down at me and he's screaming, look out. Afterwards, he came up to me and he said, I don't know what the fuck I thought you were going to do <laughs> wearing this ATV. Wait, it, did you have a helmet on? I had a helmet okay. on. It uh, would have killed me without the helmet. Right, right. I mean, I had butted the truck and slammed the ground. Uh, Tommy turned that rig into the wall and for some reason the steering axle and the semi hooked and turned that. It's a cab over, so it's a, a bullnose front. 
and he hit the wall and crushed it from the center line of the windshield. It's got a bar that goes down to the back of the right side door, crushed it flat and destroyed the semi and saved my life. And I was was Jeff Dash involved in that? Jeff was involved in some of the stuff we did, but he wasn't driving that. Okay. I'd done a lot of semi stuff with Jeff, but it, this wasn't him. It was, I believe it was Tommy Huff. I went to high school with Jeff Dash, and I'm just trying to. So how, it's just get fast, him, throw him a bone. Yeah, I how get fast it. were y'all going there? Probably 55 plus going down the riverbed, and it was like this I've got a wall here, a truck here, he's got a wall there, there's no place to go. They unpiled the gear off of me, and I'm paralyzed on my right side. I've got no arm and no shoulder. And uh, I know I'm hurt pretty bad. I'm not sure how bad. And uh, they asked me if I was okay. People asked me since then, they say, how long were you in the hospital? And I said, I didn't go to the hospital. I worked the rest of the day. Ask me why. I know why. I know you do. Yeah. Because if you tell them you're hurt, they'll think you did something wrong. It started to come back. I didn't tell a soul about it. I had about 30% of my arm by the time we wrapped the movie, and I never told a soul. However... I had to go back and report back to first unit like two weeks later, and James by then had really taken a liking to me. We got along. He yelled at everybody, but he never yelled at me ever. I, I like to believe it's because he knew I could kill him and make it look like an accident because everything we did was like <laughs> balls against the wall. And I was driving into the parking lot at the corral, and he saw me. He came running over. He didn't wait for me to stop, and he jumped up on the passenger side door and grabbed it, and he said, are you all right? I heard you had a wreck out there. And I said, well, James, let me ask you a question. And he said, what's that? I said, did that shot make it in the movie? He said, hell yeah, I made it in the trailer too. And I said, then I'll be fine. And then years later, I re-injured my neck doing a, a space horse opera called Serenity. Mm. And I bashed my head and snapped it back and reactivated the, the fracture site. And I lost my arm again. And they had to, they had to open me up and take the calcium off the fracture sites. I remember... I went to the doctor and he did the MRI and he, I said, so what's going on? And he said, well, right here where you broke your neck, the calcium deposits have started to grow back onto the nerve bundle. And I said, where I what? I'd never had a doctor look at it. He said, you broke C4 and C5. And the calcium deposits, when I re-aggravated it, began to grow and they, they impinged on the nerve and I lost my right side again. I've got about 90% of it back now, but it's not, I'm not conscious of it. Jeez. Yeah. Cool. A little, yeah. little, so, little crazy. It's things I happen to know about you, Jack. And, uh, right? Yes, you not do. just because I love you, because <laughs> I respect There's you too. There's not that many people that know as much about me as you do. Man, I remember things, in, and, in it's, and it's interesting. You do. It's a little dangerous to tell you anything knowing that. Yeah. Were there other sequences in Terminator Two that? Well, that you worked all on? of the running stuff on it was all mine. Everything that was moving a camera. When we went to shear, shear the top off of the semi. Uh, James knew that we'd kill a stuntman trying to do it. We've got a real overpass he's going to hit. We've scored the top, and it might go back or it might go down. They can't drive it in there. It'll kill somebody. So he asked me if I could pull it in there under tow with that rig, and it outweighed me about three times my weight on a surface with no traction whatsoever, and I said, yes, but nobody on. Mm -hmm. Nobody riding with me because it's too dangerous. He said, fine, it won't be anybody but you and I because he's crazy. And he got in the cab. We ran all the camera controls into the cab with us so he could roll the camera, and he had a monitor in there. And I had a two-mile run to get to it around this windy road, and we're, like, right on the edge of tagging the walls in every corner, and it's not anything for a picture. We're just trying to get to the mark going fast enough. And I asked him, as soon as you hit, you're cutting away, right, because he's editing the picture. I said, the minute it hits, you've got other stuff to go to. And he said, yes. Because I don't know what it's going to do when I hit. It might pick up my back end. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen to us in the truck. And he said, I'm going to cut the instant it hits. I've got 
you know, seven cameras on the impact point. I've got the actor going to pop up out of it afterwards. Do whatever you got to do. And I'd rigged an air brake, which was that engineering thing. I figured out a way to control the brakes on the semi. And we hit that thing at almost 60 miles an hour, and it sheared the top off. And, and he rolled the cameras, nobody else on but him. And when we hit that thing and came out the other side, I slammed the air brakes on and locked all 10 wheels on the semi and slid us to a stop. And James, in typical James Cameron fashion, no matter what we did, we blew up the Cyberdyne building on Terminator 2. I mean, we leveled a three-story building, and he walked out and did the same thing he did that day. He walked out and he went, it's raining flaming debris. And he said, cool. Just <laughs> that classic understatement. Let me ask you this, Jack. Did, did this hurt? Uh, did it look like it hurt? <laughs> and how many times did you have to do that? I did seven saddle falls. That seven? I thought it was less than that. There ask you go. There you go. They, ask me which take they use. The first. Of course. I don't have to ask you <laughs> what, what they, they, use, take they use. They always use take one. He hit me in the face with that rubber gun. Mm-hmm. He had a rubber pistol in his hand and knocked me off the high side of a 17-hand bay. That's a very big horse. It's like falling off a two-story building. I went right to my back. On one take, I landed on my nose, which I'd finally gotten fixed after breaking it right in rodeo as a kid. I finally got my nose yeah. straighter than it was. It's never going to be pretty, but it was straight. And I wanted my landed right on my beak. I just knew I broke it again, and they used take one. And then what did you say to him on the? Uh, didn't you say something on the seventh take? Well, no, I'm just. You just take it. You just do what they tell you to do. And then they wanted to bring bring Arnold in to do his throwaway line, which right. became one of his classic, you know, you know, movie lines. He jumps on the horse and he says, "All the police business," and he spins and he rides away. Right. So I'm behind the camera. I'm still in full pads. Everything I got hurts because every part of me has hit the ground in a different way on a different take. And I'm just there in case he needs an eye line next to the camera. And he does his throwaway line. And he rides off. And he does about five or six tapes, takes. And James is over at the monitor looking. And he's got this entourage. It's always a little dangerous to watch the monitor behind him because he might spontaneously erupt at any minute. But people took their chances. And they're watching the monitors. And I'm saying, Carpenter, come over here. <laughs> My stunt pads are going. And he says, play that back. And they played back the thing. And they played all five takes. He said, what do you think? I said, what, you want me to direct now? He says, shut up and tell me what you think. I said, I like take one. He said, Fred, take one. He screamed, and they walked away. So then he set me on the ground to do a line of dialogue, which, thank God, did not wind up in the movie because I had never gone to the Lola's school of acting. I was going to At do that it. time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Stuntman is a guy who says, all right, mother stickers, this is a fuck up. And then they shoot you and blow you up and set you on fire. It's not a minimal about a dialogue to get you to where they kill you. But you did say you had the confidence for dialogue after you had studied with. I wish I'd had that in my pocket when I was there, Brian. So I'm on the ground and he says, okay, they put all the cameras on me. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? He says, well, make something up. I said, what do you mean make something up? He said, make something up. I said, you're the writer. You wrote this thing. Write something. He goes, just make something up. Roll cameras. And I did my best Barney Fife with the trying to get the pistol out and having it flip out of my hand. And it was it was pitiful. He it made the cutting room floor. Thank God for everybody. It didn't wind up in the movie. But at least I gave it a shot. So So you worked with him on True Lies one other time, or did you work with him well, anymore? True than Lies, that? I was on the full length of the movie. We right. shot in DC. We went down to Florida and into the Keys. There's stuff like, you talk about the engineering stuff. All right. We had a shot with the Harrier jump jet 
where it spins around and it caves in the roof of a police car. I love a Harrier jet. And there are, we've got these dummy jets that we're using for stuff. You go into our base camp and there's like seven Harrier jump jets and three helicopters and and then 40 trucks. It was like a big company. And we needed a scene with the with the plane spinning around with Arnold flying it, and it crushes the cop car before he gets a hold of it and flies off to mm-hmm. go shoot the missile. And they weren't sure how to destroy the car or have the car Wait, stand. Let, let me ask you, who's on this rig up here? That is just stunt doubles. It wasn't. I wasn't up there. I was. It freaks the shit out of me just looking at stuff was, like that. It was frightening. I was on the set and yeah. walked around it. It was very scary. Yeah. Working on that boom. That was like a real thing. Boom, hundreds of feet in the air. Yeah. And then we had these cameras that were. They were pretty new. They were technocrane cameras that they could. They could move the camera in and out on the boom. Could telescope. It was real new technology. We figured out how to get it up there and, and do these shots. Using I'm sorry, you were talking about your engineering thing? You were talking... Oh, so they wanted to crush the top of the car. So we designed it. We put a plate. We welded a plate inside the top of the car and ran a cable down to the ground through the chassis to a pulley, and I hooked it up to the front of my camera car. And then as they as they spun around the, the, the uh, Harrier jump jet and spun around, just as it got to the windshield, I started backing up. Being collapsing the roof of the car down so that it looked like the wheel was crushing the car down the middle of the top. Oh, okay. And then, of course, he spins around and flies off to do this right. sequence here. Right. They really awesome. blew up that bridge, too, in the Keys, right? Actually, no. There, yeah. We were on what they call Seven Mile Bridge, which was the original Keys Highway. He's from yeah. Florida. Yeah, I've okay. driven by it. All right. Seven Mile Bridge was replaced by another highway. And mm-hmm. at that point, they took, there was a, uh, it's not a drawbridge, but they had a rotating T-section of a bridge or something that was in that gap. Mm-hmm. The main highway was over there, and the bridge is now a seven-mile fishing pier. You walk out there and you fish off the pier. And we took two 40-foot barges. It was an 80-foot span, and they built all of the wreckage and debris of a bridge that was blown up. Mm-hmm. And they floated them into that span and then scuttled them, set them on the bottom so that all that wreckage was in the gap to look like we'd just shot it with the Harrier jump jet and blown the bridge out. Gotcha. Damn. Which the actual explosion was digitally done. Mm-hmm. It was a digital effect, but then the bridge itself was practical. We oh, had okay. to work. I feel yeah. like my yeah. uncles or someone back in the day were like, yeah, they really, well, the, they really the, blew that The rumor up. has it that the guy that ran the drawbridge on his last day before retirement, a barge or something, hit the abutment and caught fire and he burned to death in the tower. I don't know if that was true oh, or not, geez. but it was what we were all talking about. He died on his last day after 40 years of pushing a button to work the drawbridge <laughs> on Seven Mile Bridge. Wow. Crazy. I don't know if we have anything else to talk about. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it for you. Then when Arnold's got the jump jet in the air, he's go, he goes and he shoots the box trucks because one of them has got the nuke in it. Right. And I'm doubling one of the terrorists in a box truck riding passenger. If you're going to do stuntman, the idea is I'm going to drive a car, I'm going to spin around, I'm going to flip it over, it's good. What stunt work really looks like is riding passenger with a guy whose driving abilities you're not entirely convinced of. And you're driving through fire and explosions. Mm-hmm. And I'm in this, they were like van front end with a box on the back, and I'm riding with this enormous stunt double guy, and he is screaming lines from Shakespeare, and he's too big to hurt. I can't stop him if I shot him and just make him mad, and he's going to drive us in there and kill us all. And we're going to hit a bomb on my side of the truck that is an enormous fireball, and it's going to hit my, my corner. And before we got there, they poured you. gasoline contact cement over the front of the cube van and lit it on fire so we'd be on fire on our way in to do this deal. 
Nobody thought about the fact that when that stuff's burning, the smoke is coming into the cabin. It's all very poisonous, by the way. It's all burning plastic, and we can't see. It was one of these. It was actually it was one of the one of the box trucks behind it. So as we're going into the mark, the windshield fills full of smoke, and we can't see. And there's like 150 feet of the water on both sides, and we got a bomb coming up. So I opened the door on my side to suck the smoke out. The helicopter's tracking us. And just as they're going to cut into it as we hit the bomb, and just as we get to the bomb, I've got to time it to slam the door so that the fire doesn't come inside and blow us all off the bridge into the water. Jeez. And then the sequence with the limo is a separate story. That's my shot. I was actually behind him when he slid to a stop with a camera on the nose of my rig. Oh, okay. So you ran the camera on that. Right. You've been watching Brian Lally, Hollywood native. Now I want to talk to you about something I'm really passionate about, and that's teaching acting. So I co-founded Lola's Acting School with my son, Kyle Lally, Lally or Lally Acting School. I've been acting for a, a long time now of 100-plus credits on IMDb, hundreds of plays I've been involved with over the years, and I just want to share that experience with you. What we do differently here at Lola's is we give you practical advice that you can use on a movie set, on a play, an audition, anywhere. We give you the foundation to build yourself as a great actor. If you come to us, you don't know anything. We can teach you everything you need to know to be comfortable on a, on a set and to excel. Don't just listen to me. Look at what our students are doing. Daryl Wesley, who is writing on two hit shows, The Game and The Upshaws, and Ben Barrett, who is a series regular on The Politician, Megan Davis who is uh, playing Amber Heard in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard story. Come check us out. We're at the Historic Arc Theater in the NoHo Arts District. You ever want to try plant-based eating? I have. What, you're a little confused, overwhelmed, you don't know how to get started? Definitely. Well, there's a simple answer to that. Go to Debbie Chu's Chew on Vegan YouTube channel. Debbie Chu is a plant-based RN. I've known Debbie for over 38 years, and she's very good at what she does. You go to the channel, and there's 300, over 300, recipes they're simple easy to make and they're delicious if you want to try it you just might get healthy give it a shot chew on vegan now in this sequence there's the armenian limo driver right and he gets shot and the gag is that his big fat foot winds up on the throttle and right. he's laying against the steering wheel. Right. And they're careening towards the bridge. Now that footage is mine. I'm in my truck with the camera on the front. Right. And the, the stuntman's driving the rig and he's slamming both guardrails and they've got spark hits. When he hits the rails, the spark hits explode like that. So it looks like sparks with the sheet metal hitting. Mm -hmm. And he's going back and forth, back and forth. So you're driving camera, you're not driving the limo at all? I'm not driving the limo yet. There's a specific shot where I'm driving the limo. Right. So typically, how many times is this limo having we, to be? We ran it off the end one time, but we did a lot of repeated runs down there. It's a long bridge. Mm -hmm. Just doing it, weaving back and forth. And I'm, I'm right up underneath behind it with a camera photographing it, hitting both side rails. And I've got a, a I think it was a locked off camera on the front without an operator. And we're chasing it into the mark. And I'm just steering the camera with the steering wheel. To mm -hmm. keep it on the limo. And you said um, Jamie Lee was a real trooper. Yeah. Well, we did all of this stuff, and there's two shots related to the helicopter because she's got no place to go. That was the bomb that I drove through when I had the door open. Right. Oh, okay. She's got no place to go, and, and Arnold's going to sweep in and pull her out of the top before the crash. Right. So one shot, which is facing up at Arnold, he's actually in a safety harness on the helicopter, and we see him reaching down to grab a hold of Jamie Lee's hand with his mm -hmm. hand extended. Mm -hmm. which is coming up here. 
and the cameras are in the limo. And I, I don't remember if I, I might have been driving that, maybe not. But with a camera and an operator on it, you can't be hitting the rails or jumping the curbs because right. the guy can't control the camera. Right. So in this shot, I'm towing for that. That's actually being towed behind my rig and then a reverse shot from the chopper. And that shot is looking up at Arnold actually on the helicopter. So we see Arnold. But when you do the shot from Arnold looking down over Arnold's shoulder, I'm towing her for that. Right. Then they called me up and they said, we need you to double the Armenian in the limo and drive Jamie Lee down there with the cameras looking down at Jamie Lee for her close-up right. looking down into the well. Right. So I go out there and I, I think they put the black suit on me, even though I'm really, it takes three of me to make up the guy that right. was driving. Right. And I went to Jamie Lee. They had done the shot looking up with it weaving back and forth with her in it. And they had just weaved back and forth without touching the curves. And that shot right there, freeze that for a second. And that shot right there, I went to Jamie Lee beforehand. And I said, Jamie Lee, here's what's going to happen. I'm driving the car. Helicopter's right on our roof. Uh, I'm not going to baby this. They're looking at the car. They can see what we're doing. I'm going to jump the curb. I'm going to hit the rails. I can hear you and everything you're doing. If you've got any problem with it, you say something and we'll cut. I'll stop the brakes. We'll let the helicopter go. If you feel insecure at any time, you let me know. They rolled the cameras and I started down the bridge with her and they said action and I jumped the curb and started slamming the rails. Jumped the curb, slammed the rails. We went all the way down the bridge, slamming both sides. She's in a well that has actually got no seams on it. So when we do the stunt, we can pull the stunt woman out and there's not anything she can get hung up on. Right. And every time I hit one of those rails, she's like the pee in a policeman's whistle. She goes slamming against the side. She'd kind of get control and reach up towards the camera right. and I'd slam the other side. And when you see her physical reaction, it's just inertia. We're really hitting the rails. And I, she's not saying anything, and I'm wondering if she's just too afraid to say anything. We get to the end of the run, and there's like 25 stuntmen down there who are going to come in and rescue. They don't care about me driving the car. They're going to go make sure Jamie Lee's okay. And I, <laughs> We got to the end of it, and I stopped the car, and I got out, and they descended on her like a swarm of hornets, and they got her unclipped, and they got her out of the harness, and she climbed up and slid down the back window and slid down the, deck, the, the rear deck of the car, and she comes running around the side, and I thought, oh, here it comes. And she jumps on me with her arms around my neck and wraps her legs around my waist and hugs me real tight. She said, oh, my God, that's the most fun I ever had with my clothes on. <laughs> that's what I mean by her being a trooper. She was, yeah. like, in it all the way. She was delightful to work with. And that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And then when it goes off the end as a separate sequence, we really drove the car off. Nobody had ever done a remote drive car before. We brought in this guy who invented a rocket fuel that made him rich. He designed a cockpit that sat on the roof of my rig with a steering wheel and a throttle and he had, was radio controlled and they had servos in the car to control the throttle and the steering. And we're gonna do a, like a four mile run down the bridge at speed, helicopters are with us and drive it off of that drop right there. And he's up on the top with this weird windshield thing. He's, he's like a mad scientist. And when that happened right there, the helicopter flies in but the stunt woman is already dressed and in a harness and she's already on the helicopter. We got everything up to speed. He came over my head and he lowered her in to the top. And I got a camera on the front looking at it. The camera's everywhere else. Lowered her into the top, matching her speed. So when it went off the end, he just flew straight and pulled her back out again. And it looks like they flew in yeah. and grabbed it and pulled her out the top. But I was, that thing, you see how far yeah. it went. Can we see that one more time? We Scott? were doing about 70 miles an hour. And I've got to be close enough for the radio controls to work. And I slid right up to the end of that bridge to get stopped because if I was any farther back, the radio wasn't going to work.
So I'm Man. just off camera behind the child. That's awesome. You know what? You know how many times I've seen this movie? 25 to 30 times, maybe more. And I still get nervous and excited when she's hanging out of that car. Me too. I love movies. And that's I her hanging out of the chopper. That was a separate shot. They put her under the chopper. She just go for it. Girl. Yeah, that's awesome thing. That's awesome. So let's move on to some other films you've done. Quite a few of them. <laughs> that was that was it, Brian. I got this my is, resume ends right there. What did you do in the latest Matrix? In Matrix Two. They needed to do a freeway chase sequence. So right. there was no freeway in the world they could like shut down to do what we wanted to do. So right. they built a freeway on Old Navy Base up in Oakland. They they built like a two mile freeway with sound walls and overpasses and underpasses and exits and entrance ramps. And we had all of our own cars, extras and stunt people driving. And there's a sequence where the key maker is riding with a girl on the motorcycle and they're getting away, weaving in and out of traffic. And I designed a rig on my ATV that would allow me to tow the motorcycle with the actors on it. And it would lean the motorcycle in the corners properly, which is hard to do because it doesn't lean when it's under tow. And then we did all of the sequences, splitting the traffic with the actors on it, driving back and forth, weaving in and out of, the, uh, of our cars. Mostly when they were close to me, it was stunt people. I was there as a stunt man. It mm -hmm. was stunt people because they don't trust the extras yeah. not to do something silly and get somebody in trouble. The very next night, the stunt woman uh, riding the motorcycle with the keymaker on the back had a wreck and hurt her pretty good. Jeez. It's very dangerous yeah. work. That scene is nuts. I've always wondered how they how um, they did that, executed that. That's crazy. I'm looking for more shit for you, Jack. So that's come good. on, come on, bring it. <laughs> uh, has there been any onset beef, like actors, directors, that was like anything yeah. worth? Yeah, and yeah. crazy, crazy. Yeah. It's like Cameron. I did several movies with Cameron. Cameron has a reputation for being a screaming maniac with the crew. People are terrified of him. Mm -hmm. But what I learned about him early on is there'd be about four or five people on his shoulder in, in James's inner circle, and they're always treated with respect. He never raises his voice to them, ever. Mm -hmm. Anything they suggest, he, he'd come to me and say, how do we do this? And I'd do a drawing on a napkin at lunch, and he'd give it to the construction guys and say, build that, that's the jump ramp. And when you're on that inner circle, you could do nothing wrong. But I watched him shred people right and left on the set. I'm not sure what it was about, whether it was about control or just his personality. But there were some of us who he never, he, I remember he was having a fit because we had a truck stunt go wrong. I think it was on Terminator. And the video recorder guy's riding in the cab with me. And, the, and it all went wrong. Timing was all wrong. And he jumps off and he's screaming on the radio. And he comes over and he grabs the edge of my rig. And he's got this look on his face like he'd eat small children raw looking at the video guy and then he looks across at me and he undergoes, you talking about. he undergoes this psychic change and he goes so what do you think jack can we do that better and i said i think we could do it better next time he goes one more he screams and the video guy jumps and we go off and do it again so i, I had a i had a privileged position whenever i worked with him as one of the inner circle okay so lost world is that lost world jurassic park uh yes i was in that so Were we you? worked in a film together? we've done movies together yeah Wow, I didn't know we shared a credit, Brian. Yeah, well, we did. So there's so many things we want to talk about, Jack. I mean, Rambo 3, that was a that was a fuck story. There was a lot of stuff going on. One of my favorites is I was driving a tank. We got 300. We got 300. I was driving a tank. We had 300 Marines dressed as, as Soviet soldiers. And right. We got 600 reenactors who were working on the movie Living in Tents. 
I don't know how they arranged that, but they'll dress them all up as Cossacks. And there's a big sequence where they're we're down in Yuma, Arizona, where they're charging each other across the riverbed, and we got a line of tanks going, and the, and the Cossacks and the horses are coming the other way. And I see this stuntman. There's stuntmen mixed in with the reenactors that are going to be in a position of danger or an elevated skill or whatever. And the stuntman's coming in, and the horses hit us straight for the tank next to me. And he goes, he runs into the front of that tank as hard as that horse will run, straight in front of it, spits him over the tank to the to the ground, knocks the horse down. Why it didn't kill the horse, I don't know. We immediately cut. I climbed out of my tank, and we ran over there, and we picked him up and asked him if he was all right. And I said, what the hell were you doing? It looked like he rode the horse into the tank on purpose. He said, when you're a stuntman and you're riding a horse, they just give you what's in there. You don't get to pick one or one that you know. You're going to get a horse that might or might not have a personality you can work with. Some of them are pretty rank. Mm -hmm. He's that son of a bitch was bound and determined to run into that tank, so I let him. <laughs> For the rest of like, we were there like three more weeks. That horse never got within a hundred yards of a tank after that. But as Mark Twain said, a man who carries a cat by the tail will learn a lesson he can learn perhaps no other way. That tank was that horse's cat, man. <laughs> but the other thing that happened is the tanks that we're driving have got tank muzzles on they got cannons on them and we're got, we want them to shoot in the battle but the way you're doing that is you're you got an explosive charge that blows flaming cork out the front so you get smoke and a belch of flame and some debris coming out and they can't like fire round after round they can put one maybe two charges in the tank and set them off sequential so we're going across the valley in the tanks and then on a queue we realize the cossacks are attacking from the rear and we all do these turns to go back and meet the the cossacks uh warriors and they instructed these guys don't pull the trigger on the tank don't fire the tank when it's pointed at anybody because there's, there's serious stuff comes out of the end of that. it's cork but it's on fire coming at velocity and i've got a camera crew on my roof in camouflage clothes with a camera emplacement that's disguised to look like a machine gun nest the, the operator was a guy named leo napolitano this little camera operator and he's supposed to look like he's running a machine gun during the battle but he's actually doing photographing right and uh we made our turn and a turn, turn, tank turned in behind us. And I hear this incredible explosion. The entire tank is like somebody hit hit me in the head with a baseball bat with my when I had it in a 50-gallon trash can. It was enormous. And I hear Leo say, we're hit. We're hit. And then I hear the explosion again. The guy shot him twice in the back of the head, like powdered him with all of the, all this stuff. And we got out and Leo was okay. Just banged him up a little bit. And he said, I guess he thought we were still alive because I was still moving, so he shot us again. <laughs> so That's awesome. That's awesome. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. That is a... Excellent movie. Yeah. What's going on with you and that? I had a high-speed camera car that was built on an NASCAR I find chassis. that hard to believe. Uh, I, it's just defies the imagination. It was a square-tube chassis with a mid-engine big-block Chevy in it and camera mounts everywhere. And I was there to do all of the lead-ups, the, the limos and the, the trucks, the cars rolling over, the SUVs rolling over. A lot of stuff I shot from the other side of the center divider looking over the wall as they were weaving in and out of traffic and getting to the track in them when they'd come in and do explosions and rollovers. I'd be there and the cameraman could like pan up and catch them in the air when they were turning over or whatever. So the, the freeway chase sequence on that was something I was involved in, not a lot of the rest of it. So were you a fan, as we were when we were young, of the original Gone in 60 Seconds? 
minimally. Yeah. It was there were foreign cars, Brian. We were about Chevys and Fords and big blocks. Well, Eleanor they were would, running Mini Coopers that you could fit you could use for a spare in a trunk of your sedan. Come El- on. Eleanor <laughs> was a Ford. Well, that's a little different. Well, yeah. So that's you know, that was the Yeah. Well that's that, that car they designed that car from the ground up. They uh they took all of the actors and they sent them to driving school. They all went to I think Bob Bondurant went put them all through their paces on a drive on a skid pad taught them how to drive. And their plan was to have the actors drive for everything. They'll mount cameras on the car, they put lights on, throw the switch, and they'll go racing out traffic, do whatever. They brought me in to tow them all, but yeah. they weren't planning to do that because the actors are gonna drive. So I'm behind the camera, first two or three days. I'm on there as a stunt contract because when I'm working, it's gonna be serious business, but I'm not doing anything. And Delroy Lindo was in the black, I think it was a black BMW, and he's coming down 6th Street in Los Angeles He's supposed to throw a great big sliding turn and then punch it and go down this alley. And it was kind of a tight fit, and we're all standing on the side of the road. And they they did a hell of a job teaching the actors to drive. They actually did Nick, those guys, they did their homework. They were pretty good with a car. Scott Kahn, but he was pretty good. Yeah, and then he came in, and he was just a tenth of a second late getting back to the throttle. And when he gassed it, he hit the curb just past the, the, the alley entrance, and the yeah. curb was about... 12 or 14 inches high, and it stopped him at speed. It was a oh. sudden, oh. jarring, stopping impact. They cut the cameras. He rang his bell, didn't hurt him bad. But when we backed the car off of the curb, there were pieces of the en- aluminum engine block the size of my head laying on the ground. Oh, shit. It shattered the motor. Right. And from that point to the end of the movie, almost exclusively everything they did was under tow with me. I told yeah. them frontwards, backwards, sideways, sliding the corners. I told Nick Cage backwards going down the street where he nods at the kid in the car that's driving next to him when he's reloading his gun. Right. That was all stuff that I did. Then we took that little buggy that you saw on Terminator, the little, the yeah. little with the high-peaked one, and we did uh, the chases down on the wet pier down at uh, San Pedro right. on camera. I'm actually spinning it around so the camera does these things, chasing Eleanor, the Eleanor cars that's sliding around, running in between the obstacles. Years later, I get a call from a guy who's clearly drunk at about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. He's at a pub in Australia. And I have no idea how he got my phone number. He called up to ask me how he could get an Eleanor car. And I don't, <laughs> to this day, I still don't know how he knew. To I had nothing to do with the building of the car. And I said, sorry, pal, that's not something you can buy. It's not a kit that anybody made. Our, our art department designed that car and built it from the ground up. Subsequent to that, they started producing the Eleanor package. If you had a car, you could put it on. Really? There. But that time, there wasn't. Oh, this guy called me from Sydney, Australia, to find out where to get one of the Eleanors. <laughs> so as far as Nick Cage didn't, uh, didn't take it? Uh, very professional, uh, delightful to work with. Some people are high maintenance. There's some actors you know going in or you're instructed going in. You don't talk to them. You don't make eye contact. I won't name names, but, you know, if you work in the business. I'm sitting right here, Jack. Uh, besides Brian, there are other ones that you don't interact with at all. There are people that are maybe they're in their character all the time and you can't talk to them. I've done stunt work with people like that. They're a little scary to do stunt work with. So Worked with Seth Rogen twice. Yeah. Pineapple Express. And Green Hornet. And Green Hornet. I didn't do as much on Green Hornet, but I did some pretty good stuff on Pineapple. Yeah. I came out to visit you on the set of Green Hornet. Uh, Hang I, out with I Seth remember a down bit. Century City, I believe. No, not we said we were way out somewhere. Huge open lot, and you were on the other side. Um, 
Yeah, Being in my presence apparently it impresses you a lot more than it does me because I don't remember the place, Brian. Well, yeah, it becomes everything I see becomes vast when we hang out. So um, the Pineapple Express was a was a lot of fun to watch. Right, Franco with his foot through the windshield. Right, and you're you're towing them all around, towing spinning. them backwards down the down the street. Yeah, well, yeah. forwards and then backwards. Yeah, I came in on that late. They had had another piece of equipment. They were supposed to build the car onto a vehicle that a guy drives remotely. It was called the Go-Mobile, and right. for some reason it went down. And they called me the night before they're supposed to do that sequence that we're talking about. And they said, we need to tow this car. We're going kind of hot. We want to slide it around. If we can slide it around. I said, okay, no problem. So I came in pretty cold, and I got a hold of the car, and I did a modification to it so I could control the brakes. And then, uh, so I could slide it around the corners and all that. I can lock the rear brake and slide the car without my braking traction so I can control where the car goes. And uh, I told the guys where this sequence where they hit the cop, they're going forward, and then they're backing up. So this is you going backwards? This uh, this right here is me towing him backwards. I'm actually driving forward, towing the car backwards. And when you see the car with them in it, you'll see the background go back and forth because I'm actually sliding the back of the picture car. And nobody on the show, especially the actors, I mean, I give them a heads up and say, here's what we're doing, going kind of hot, going to slide the corners. Actors, typically they go, okay, yeah, 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 and they get their makeup stuff all, all <laughs> being done. They're not paying attention. But after take one, I had their undivided attention. <laughs> I did a Tom Berenger movie. The movie My- was Shattered, which is actually an excellent whodunit movie. Right. And I've got Tom Berenger, and we're doing the whole movie. I'm towing it at night. I'm towing on wet roads, sliding around with cliff drop-offs on the side, and we're doing all this stuff every day. Behringer's a trooper. He's in there. He's not asking any questions. He's not worried about me hurting him. And uh, Bob Hoskins comes out, and he's supposed to now ride passenger with Behringer in this car. Right. And we're doing this logging road going at speed. And Behringer and I have already done this several times before the Hoskins character gets in the car, and we're sliding the corners and there's drop-offs and trees and stuff. And this isn't where you're driving from the passengers. No, th- no well, okay. I did that on that movie, too. Okay. But in this sequence, I'm towing Tom in the car. Oh, okay. So Hoskins comes out, and I go, Mr. Hoskins, I, you're in the car for the first time. I'm just going to let you know that we're going kind of hard. I'm going to slide the corners. I'm not going to hurt you, but you need to know this is pretty Western, what we're doing. That's a way to describe something. It's going to be pretty exciting. And he was doing the deal, man. They're doing his time. He's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> so they rolled cameras. I get it up to speed. They said action, and I throw it into the first turn, and there's a drop-off on the right side of the road, and Hoskins, on camera, looks to the side, and he says, holy fucking Christ! <laughs> and then he, he goes back to doing his dialogue with, with Behringer, but he keeps looking out the side to see what's coming, and we did this long take, and we got all done, and I, I can't see the camera. I don't know what's going on, and I get done, and the director comes around. And he said, he told me what happened. I said, I'm, I'm really sorry. I tried to explain to him what we are doing. He goes, no, no, he was supposed to look scared, and we liked it because he really did. <laughs> from then on, if I said good morning to Bob Hoskins, he would say, what? What did he say? Was he talking to me? What are we doing? <laughs> he, was like, he hung on every word after that, but I had a little, one, one car slide got his undivided attention, and Barringer's like, Never breaking character. He's in the deal doing, and Hoskins is peeing his pants over there. Rest his soul. A very sweet man to work with. Yeah, unfortunately, he had the yeah. brain disease. Good actor, Roger Rabbit. Correct. Yeah. It was really an excellent movie. Yeah. I had earphones on for the whole movie, and I'm Greta Sachi, and I'm hearing all the dialogue, and there's like a hook in the mystery. 
and I heard all the dialogue, and I didn't get it in the theater watching the movie until just before they sprang it on the audience. I finally Whoa. caught on to what was going on. We shot that car through the through. It was a special effect, no stunt people. They mounted it on a trailer with a with a cannon. A, I think it was a nitrogen cannon in the front of it. And when they pressurize it, it shoots the car off of this. They back the trailer into the guardrail and they right. shoot it off. The first time they did it, they didn't weld it in good enough, and they rolled it in and pull and yelled action, pulled the trigger. And the projectile came out of the front of the car like it was launching a torpedo, and the car stayed on the trailer. We had to go back and rethink the, the welding on it. Did you this get is... the footage of the the crash on Terminator? Was there any outside footage of the crash happening? Which crash? We did a lot of them. Oh, when you when you got injured? It was just the shot of that back tire. The, okay, only, the yeah. only evidence of my accomplishment is that the tire got. Hit, got hit by the front yeah. front bumper of the semi. I yeah, it wasn't a BTS, yeah. you know, at the at back thirty years ago. So yeah. didn't happen. Yeah, no, it's you know, it's great. I mean, we got it, but you know, nowadays they just film everything, which is which is good, in a way. I like it to be a secret. I don't. I don't want movie I like magic. The movie magic. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't you want know to reveal. It's a shame that that ethic that Harvey Perry had that he never ever told anybody he doubled Harold Lloyd contributed to the myth of the actor yeah. and the impression of the audience. And unfortunately the digital imaging industry has never had any qualms about breaking their anonymity. Look what we did. We filled the stands with a hundred thousand people. Right. You watch a movie now, an action movie, it's a high value cartoon. Yeah. When you see them, they're on fire. I can tell, but the audience can't tell when the fire is computer generated and it's not actually burning. Right. I've done fire. I've done fire where they, on true lies, where they put douse me with gasoline and contact cement, put a bomb on my back. I've done real fire. But to do that in those days and to have it seen, you look, you went, that guy's on fire. It has an impact on the audience yeah. that's been lost because of the lack of anonymity practiced by the digital imaging people. They've got to blow their horn because they got investors they want it you know there's all these competing companies industrial mm -hmm. light magic and all of those yeah so it's a, it's a shame that they've they've ruined the imagination yeah when you went to go see vanishing point like i did 50 oh, times in geez, the back row man. of the drive-in movie Come on. with kowalski yeah and when you saw a car jump or a motorcycle fly off the bridge in the water there was a guy in there that has an impact on you as an audience but we've lost that it's a guy a running into a bulldozer yeah. That one they cabled that one in. That would that would have probably killed the stuntman. But uh, you get the basic idea. Yeah, right. And, practical. You, know, we, you knew when Hooper better. when they jumped that rocket car over the ravine yeah. on Hooper, mm -hmm. there was a real Jado bottle on the car and right. a real guy driving it who right. took his life in his hands to get that footage because there wasn't another way to get it. If right. you see that in the movie today, you go <laughs> fast forward. Yeah. What, what do you got next? Right. And it's like. I'm retiring from the business now. I think, I think we've killed the imagination related to our industry for what I do, that we've, that we've really destroyed the audience's belief in what they were seeing on the screen, and it's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. Nice. Jack Carpenter. You're a legend. Thank you. Only in my own mind. Well, I love you. I really appreciate you doing this, and it's an honor. I'm excited to do this with you. I've never even seen a podcast, and now I are one. 